morning. You believe that? That's our only hope, folks, isn't it? You know, we're excited about uh, God opening the doors here, and uh, as you as you probably realize, it's a lot easier to get into this parking lot. Uh, our others was our other was like a corn maze in the fall. That uh, <laughs> if you could figure out how to get in, then you deserve to find a seat or something like that. But uh, we're glad that God's given us an open door here. But uh, actually, that video. Uh, Pastor Joe Foch of Calvary Chapel Philly uh, shared that with uh, a bunch of the Calvary Chapel pastors, and and uh, we couldn't last week, uh, you know, as we were leaving the other building, uh, our downstairs AC stopped working, the internet stopped working. God said, I'm phasing you out of this place. <laughs> and so I wanted to show that video last week, but couldn't show it, but uh, God had a, a plan in mind that we would show it here this morning. And, and I really believe, as we've been praying, uh, if you've been at Calvary Chapel a long time, We've been praying every single Sunday morning for three-plus years for revival. And really, the only hope for revival is the local church. It's not the Red Cross. It's not the federal government. It's not uh, you know, more agencies. It's not more money. It's money. You realize that money doesn't solve the problems, right? It's only the Spirit of God working through the people of God and the local church. And so we're excited that he has put us in this place uh, we believe that, uh, you know, God moved us from a place where uh, roughly the same square footage as a building, but we actually had no land. Here we actually have 11 and a half acres. It's kind of hard to count the woods because we won't really do much in the woods, uh, but they're pretty out there, right? Uh, uh, but about seven open acres, and so whatever God has in store down the road, we're looking forward to it. Uh, this building here, uh, it actually holds 170 chairs right now. The other one we had about 150 chairs in. So there's, believe it or not, there's actually 20 more chairs in here than when you sat in our previous sanctuary. We could still few, uh, squeeze a few more in. We made a little prayer corner over there for not if, but when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can meet them over in the corner, give them a Bible, and start to kind of work on the next steps of discipleship. So uh, we're really looking forward to what the Lord starts to do. And even tonight with uh, Adam's Road being here, you know, when we booked them, uh, we had no idea God was going to open up the door for us to move to this place. Uh, they, we booked them months ago, six, about five, six months ago, and we were the last tour in the entire country for them when they go back to their home in Florida. They take like three months away from their wives or husbands and family and just go share the gospel. Their amazing transformation of they were devout Mormons and have radically been born again. If you come tonight, you'll get a chance to meet them. I mean, they were earlier this summer, they were with Kirk Cameron and Kim Ham up at Answers in Genesis, and they've played at quite a few Calvary chapels, a lot of, a lot of Baptist church, a lot of uh, Church of God, non-denominational around the country. We're blessed to have them, really their last stop before they head back to Florida. So they'll be here tonight, uh, young men that, and, and one young woman that uh, hearing their testimony and the, the songs they sing will be a blessing. But I know that they have the same hope that we do, is that God will use the gospel to bring our nation back to him. You saw the video there, all the problems we have in this country. Just this week, another mass shooting in Oregon, right? One of the common denominators, if you watch these things, all the way back, and remember Columbine, the first one? So the very first one, ever since Columbine, every one of these shootings are, every single time so far, are young men, usually between the age of 19 and 28, somewhere in that range, young men, and it tells us something about the lack of leadership in American homes. There's no, who's training? You know, parents used to train their kids, 
not to even do much less things, much less these kind of things that we see today. And it's, it's a demonic thing. Uh, it is Satan deci- deciding and trying to destroy and kill when Jesus came to save. And, you know, these young men, had they come to Christ, they would have never done these things, right? That's the only hope. That's why we go into the, we got, we go into the juvenile correction facility. We meet young men who have the, and young women, who have the potential to do all of these things. But if they're saved, remember Paul? He used to be Saul, right? He went the other direction. So that's why uh, we want to continue to say, Lord, you open the doors, we'll walk through them. And this place is part of that open door, the other outreach ministries. And so be praying with us. Uh, we've got some challenges ahead. Uh, we believe that God is going to continue to bless and we will grow. Uh, and we're going to need more servants. <laughs> we're going to need more people. Uh, we're going to see people saved. We're going to need me- more people to disciple. And so we're going to need you to grow with us. And we're looking forward to God doing that. Why don't you stand as we pray for our nation? If you're visiting with us, we pray for revival. You saw the video. I don't even know who produced it, but I do love it. And I believe, do you believe? I believe that God can solve the problems that politicians have been trying to solve for 100 years, local, state, national. They never get any better, do they? And I don't think that all of them, I think many of them actually mean well, but only God has wisdom. Only God has wisdom. And so we need God's help, and we need God to touch hearts, and we need God to you know, can bring conviction of sin, and we need the Lord to use us. And if someone you live next door to, someone you work with, needs you to invite them to church, to tell them about Jesus. They need you and I to step into their life, but we need the Spirit of God's help to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this place. We thank you for opening the doors uh, here at 11900 Genito Road. We thank you for birthing uh, Calvary Chapel of Richmond uh, so many uh, years ago, 12 people. Uh, and Lord, we thank you that, uh, that what you began, you will complete. And we, Lord, we believe that revival is possible, but it, you need to awaken the church. And Lord, we need to be awakened. We need to be refreshed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would just start afresh and anew with us here this morning, that you revive our heart, that you give us a vision, that, Lord, that nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, that people we think are unreachable, you can save. And pl- solutions to problems that we think are unsolvable, you can solve. Lord, we pray that you'd bring revival. We also pray, Father, that you would uh, just deliver and protect our persecuted brothers and sisters. Lord, just in the the video, we pray for those that, Lord, are being hunted down simply for their faith. Even in this country this week, asked if they were a Christian before being killed. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would turn the hearts of those that hate the gospel and hate you, as Paul did at one time. Lord, you'd turn their hearts. Lord, we pray that you pour out your spirit here this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn with me. Uh, We are in the book of Luke, but we're not going to be today. Uh, I'm doing a special topical message today from Exodus chapter, uh, chapters, plural, 25 through 27. I'm not reading 25 through 27. I'll go through a few verses, uh, but just hold your place there. I want to read a text from the New Testament, actually three texts from the New Testament first, and then I'll have you follow along with me in Exodus chapter 25, 26, and 27, just a few verses along the way. Uh, but I want to read to you, you don't have to turn there, but three passages from the New Testament. And if, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Uh, simply raise your hand, we'll get you one. Uh, you know, if you've been 
study the Bible, that the Bible's divided up into two parts. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in the Jewish uh, perspective, the Old Testament's the Tanakh, and the New Testament we might call the New Revelation, right? Because Jesus reveals additional scripture that was completed, you know, when Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, uh, was completed. Then you have this waiting period that we'll call the silent years, and then you have the New Revelation, or the New Testament, where Jesus completes the Bible, completes the scriptures. And so some of the things that are in the Old Testament reappear in the New Testament, and they're complementary to each other. They're two sides of the same coin. And I want to read a passage, three passages, from the New Testament, and then we'll look at uh, Exodus 25 through 27. First passage is 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Listen uh, to these verses. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. He says that we are the temple. We are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.11, in him, in who? This is Jesus Christ. In Christ, or in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So the church becomes a holy temple. And then the third passage is in Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here. Aren't you glad that Jesus has brought these things now? Matter of fact, some of the, some of the peace and some of the love that we'll experience returning in heaven, he's brought those good things now through the work of the cross. But now Christ has come as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. So here we've got the writer of Hebrews is talking about a tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that's supernatural in nature, and that we experience the good things. So understand that we're to be the temple and the tabernacle that Jesus has furnished. Now, the tabernacle... In the Old Testament, you guys remember the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, God told them to go and worship. He didn't tell them exactly where they would end up worshiping, but he said, go and worship. And when they got to the wilderness, eventually, Moses gets the instructions from the Lord when he goes up on the mountain, and God tells him, build a tabernacle, and there I will come and dwell, and that's where you'll worship. I'll come down, and if we get the term tabernacle, I'll tabernacle among you. So God tells Moses to build the tabernacle, and he gives them very, very, very precise detail and how to build it. And if you recall, God had first, before the tabernacle was built, he had rested where? He rested on the top of Mount Sinai. Even the New Testament, it was burned in the blackness. He rested on the top of Mount Sinai. The children of Israel were petrified when he was resting on the top of Mount Sinai, thunders, lightnings. Then... He rested at the tent of Moses. Moses pitched his tent outside the camp, and God rested over the tent of Moses. But the tabernacle hadn't been built yet. The dimensions had been given, but it hadn't been built yet. And then he informs the people through Moses that he desires to tabernacle among them or to rest and be among them perpetually. And they had to build the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a mobile or a movable structure. See, this building here has been here. It was built in 1974. We call it our fixer-upper, right? 
It was built in 1964. Uh, we, we should pull back the curtain and see what's new now. But this was built in 1974, uh, and we found out earlier this week uh, it had some issues. that We had to replace the sump pump and stuff like that. But we can't move this structure. You can change it, but you can't move it. Well, the tabernacle was a movable structure. It actually could be taken down, folded away, and they could move it from one place to the, ne to the next. And it was moved wherever God would lead the children of Israel and each destination in their journey. Now, later comes King Solomon. Remember, David wanted to build the temple, but the Lord said, you won't build the temple. He gives it to Solomon. Solomon builds the temple. The temple was a more permanent structure. You know, it was meant to be never moved. It was actually anchored uh, to Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem, which, by the way, today is the national or international day of prayer for Jerusalem. We'll pray that at the end. Uh, but so he builds, Solomon builds the permanent structure of the temple, and the temple is laid out like the tabernacle. They're not identical, but they're very similar. If you ever looked at kind of the way they're laid out, the temple and the tabernacle, as far as the structure, where you enter, what comes until you all the way get to the Holy of Holies, they're laid out in similar structure. And the tabernacle and the temple were both to be what? Places of worship, places of serving, that's where the priesthood was served, and a place of righteousness and holiness, and a place where the presence of God would, you would know the presence, you would know definitively that the presence of God was there. You would sense the presence of God, but you actually know for certain that God says, I will dwell there. Then Jesus comes, right? He comes and tabernacles among us. He enters into Bethlehem, and he comes down out of heaven. So he is the tabernacle. He is the temple of God, comes down out of heaven, and he dwells among men. And then by his sacrifice, he now places us, those of us that are born again, by his sacrifice, which is what Hebrews chapter 9 is speaking of there, uh, by his sacrifice and the salvation that he provides, uh, we are then grafted in or brought in. We're like little bricks put in to the tabernacle, which is the living body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That all makes sense? So from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that was a quick theological run-through of the view of the tabernacle or the temple. And they're very, very, remember the tabernacle is just the forerunner to the temple, but both of those were foreshadows to the living temple coming down out of heaven, not made with human hands, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the body of Christ. Now, this is what Paul, the writer of Hebrews, are alluding to. They're looking back, they're looking back at what was physical, and they're actually conveying to us what is spiritual. And I believe as we move into this place, we're literally in a physical building. We understand that. Uh, we did enough painting of it to know that for sure. I believe as we move into this place that God has provided for us, we're to be reminded, we're to be reminded of his plan and purpose for the church. And so I believe it's really good for us to look back at the design as we look forward to our direction. Does that make sense? We look back to the design as we look forward to the direction. In God's economy, if you want to know where you're going, you look at the road map, and that's the word of God. The New Testament church, it was and is to be a living, breathing organism filled with the life of Christ. And it's not a building. It's not the church. I mean, the church, the worldwide church, the church, United, the church is not a building. We've built a lot of impressive buildings 
in, in human history. But the church is not a building, though God certainly gives and provides buildings. We believe he gave us this place. Uh, and he uses buildings as tools, right? A lot of things that, become, that are meant to be tools become idols. Smartphones can be tools. They can be idols, right? Tablets can be tools. They can be idols. Cars can be tools. Cars can be idols. Things that, that God can give a tool, but these are just tools, nothing more, nothing less. But what it is, it's the connected people. It's the connected people. It's the body of Christ. It's the spiritual temple purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and filled with the Spirit of Christ. That's what God wants to use. Now, he'll use buildings, but he wants to use us, our lives, poured out. If the church is not filled with the Spirit, if you and I are not individually filled with the Spirit, we're just empty, empty shells of religion. Amen? If a church building is not filled with the Spirit, if you and I aren't filled with the Spirit, if we collectively as the body of Christ aren't filled with the Spirit, we're just an empty shell of religion, and there's plenty of empty shells of religion, and there's even some deadly forms of religion worldwide, isn't there? If people don't walk through these doors, we have two entrances now, we used to have one, now we have to have more greeters, we have to have more people helping, but if people enter through these two, two directional opportunities to come into the building, if they don't walk through these doors and sense the presence of the Holy Spirit, if they don't hear Christ from the Word of God from this pulpit, if in our interactions with people, if in our worship, they don't sense the Spirit, we've missed God's plan and purpose. And our light, spiritually, is set in the off position if they don't sense those things, if they don't hear from the Lord. You ever see a business, you ever see a business, you know the business is closed for the day, but the red open light's still on it. You ever seen that? You ride by and you're like, it's not open. You're not fooled because the red open light is on. The building's pitch black inside. You know, the 18-year-old teenager that was supposed to turn that light off forgot to or whatever. But sorry if you're an 18-year-old teenager, but <laughs> trust me, I did things like that. But we understand that just because the open light is on doesn't mean there's really life going on inside. People should see and they should sense the light of Christ in us and in Calvary Chapel of Richmond and in this place. And so on our first Sunday here, in this new place, in this new physical address, I didn't look at Google Maps to see what our latitude longitude is. It actually is one. But uh, exactly at this point where we're at, I felt led a few weeks back as we move in here to review the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 27 and how its building and design instructs us today. Isn't it neat that God wrote things thousands of years ago that still instruct us today? God's the only teaching that never goes out of style. It's always applicable. It'll be applicable in the year 2050 as much as it is today. And matter of fact, some things will be more applicable because you'll understand them finally the light of prophecy will be turned on. But I want us to look at the things that are in the temple or in the tabernacle and how it gives us instructions to be a healthy representation of Jesus Christ and a lost and fallen world. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's word this morning, Attributes of the Tabernacle. Attributes of the Tabernacle, and then the subtitle, God's Design for the Church. 
attributes of the tabernacle, God's design for the church. I want to look at 10 things just briefly. I'm going to just tick through them. And so you'll be able to write all 10 down. If you've never read through the book of Exodus, we actually did the entire book of Exodus a couple of years ago. Went, went through the whole book. And um, God really, in the Old Testament, again, you get these foreshadows, you get these pictures that are very illustrative of what the Lord is going to do and, and in fact, is now doing with the New Testament church when Jesus brings uh, the salvation and the grace uh, of God to earth, and we then enter in. But then he then is stitched together of every race, every tribe, every tongue, one body of Christ. And then the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, both the tabernacle and the temple reflect what we're going to look at, these attributes that are to be found in the church. The first one, I turn to, if you have your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 25, let's look first at verse 1 and 2. And again, we're not reading all these chapters. I'm going to just read about 10 total verses, and we'll just go through them one at a time. The first one, Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering. Well, one of the things to understand is that the offering belongs to who? When you actually give to the local church and you give the Lord, it's God's offering. But the first thing we want to look at is the attributes of the tabernacle. The first point is it reflects a giving people. It reflects a giving people. The tabernacle could not, well, it could. God can do anything. He doesn't need our help, right? If God wants to say, tabernacle, be there, boom, tabernacle's there, right? And he could have done that. But he instructed the people that they were supposed to give a free will offering. Now, interestingly enough, the children of Israel, a lot of what they gave before they left, mysteriously, that only God knows how he pulled it off, a bunch of Egyptians gave a bunch of wealth to the children of Israel and said, please take my life savings with you. And they did. I don't know why I'm doing this. I emptied out my bank account and I gave it to you because God impressed upon the Egyptians to give and then the children of Israel, they had to turn around and then or with a willing heart, what God had just freely given them, they had to say, yes, we will give back to build the tabernacle. So the first point, it reflects a giving people. God's people are a reflection of him and the son of God. How do we know that? Everyone knows John 3.16. Even Monday Night Football knows John 3.16. Well, it's not spelled out. But anyway, you see the number. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave. One of the proofs that we love is we're giving people of our time, of our talent, and our treasure. If you say, I love my, if you say, oh, I love my kids, but I don't do anything for them whatsoever. I don't give them my time. I don't give them anything. I don't give them any love. I don't give them any support. It'd be kind of hard to convince anyone that we would love them. But that's an attribute of God that he gave, that he gives, he continues to give. Now, giving to God will cost us something. If, if the children of Israel inherited something and God says to give it back or give a portion of it back, it will cost something. But here's the good, the good thing about that. The results are always worth it. Some things in this life people give their time and their energy and even their money to are not only not worth it, they even bring them to an early grave. Wouldn't you agree? People will give themselves to all kinds of pursuits and passions and they'll spend time, money, energy, and those things will never 
end with good results. Uh, in a sense, every time we give, if we're giving people, we're not actually giving anything. That makes sense. We're actually not ever giving. If God, here's, here's a better way of understanding it. If God gave you $100,000, he gave you $100,000 and said, all right, here's the deal. Now I want you to take $10,000 and reinvest it in my kingdom. That's really what he's doing. It doesn't matter if it's a dollar or you know, 90 cents or whatever it may be. God actually gives and we actually give back from what he's given us. That's why we're called to be stewards of our time, of our talent, our treasure. There's no way we would have opened this door, opened the doors of this building if people didn't give their time and their talent and some of the free will offerings. But the Lord asked for an offering, and that's what, that's what kick-starts it. And what the Lord is saying is that in any work, the disciples, when, they, when Peter and them, they dropped their nets to follow Jesus, what were they giving up? Their time, their abilities, and Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And even that affected their livelihood because they were earning X amount of money fishing, and the Lord says, I want you to give all that to me, render it to me. Now, the value later comes when Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved because all the money in the world can't be more valuable than one soul. But it starts with a reflection of giving people. I, I caught just a minute of Pastor Doug Stouter at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale this morning, he, and he said this about uh, time. He said, time is a gift with an expiration. A gift with an expiration. I thought that in a couple of minutes I caught it. I said, thank you, Doug. I needed one more point here. So, um, you know, we, we need time is an important thing. You know, we're, we're going to uh, soon, and you go out those doors and left, we'll have a little, we'll have our first ever bookstore. It'll be called the Calvary Chapel Book Nook, and it will rewrite in there. We'll actually have, you know, a little mini iPad, a square reader, and inventory. It's going to take us a few weeks to get that up and running, but we'll have to have someone run it. Someone has to have willing to give time, an information booth out there. All of those things take time. They take investment of talents and abilities. The second thing we want to look at, uh, first was a reflection of giving, a uh, reflection of giving people. The second, let's look at verse 9. According to all that I show you, remember that I, I said that God's detail given to Moses was so ornately specific. You couldn't alter it. You couldn't say, oh, I don't want to use badger skin. I think I'll use this. No, he says in verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Are any of you really detail-oriented? You take after God. I don't mean to make the rest of you feel bad if you are not detail-oriented. But... You know, we're made in the image of God. We're not God. We don't have God's perfection. We don't have God's per perfect holiness, but we're still made in his image. And so different of us have different attributes. Some of you are detail-oriented. God's detail-oriented. And it very specifically gives Moses these detailed instructions. But the second point, if you're taking notes, is uh, the, the attributes of the tabernacle reflect obedience to God's design. It reflects obedience to God's design. When we as pastors and leaders are called to be pastors and leaders, we are not called to design a church. We're called to follow the design. Does that make sense? We are not called to design a church. We're called to follow the design. If you ever put something together and you decide to design it yourself, it will, and there's instructions, things will go poorly, right? Now, 
God's ways always work, and they're perfect. Isn't that great to know? His ways always work, and they're perfect. They, they don't work in the same time as we sometimes want in your personal life. You said, I did exactly what God said, and nothing's working. Or is it? It's beneath the surface. You plant something in the yard, it doesn't look like anything's growing. Does it mean it's not growing? No. Under the soil, it's germinating. It actually, you've got to give it time. God's ways do work. The methods of man, they seem to work. There's a way that seems right unto a man, the scriptures say. Seems right. But those ways will eventually fail. They won't bear fruit. They won't bring peace or a right relationship with God. You can set up a circus and bring people for a million different ways. But those things don't bring fruit. You have to do it God's way. So the attributes of the temple reflects obedience to God. Let's look at the next one. Turn over to uh, verses 21 and 22. 21 and 22. There's one more. One more uh, let me give you one quote that reflects um, obedience. Henry Drummond, he said, This is how men get to know God, by doing his will. That's how we get to know God. He says, I want to know God. Do his will. Let's look at the third one, though. Verses 21 and 22. Uh, it says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there will I meet with you, and, and I will speak to you from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony. Um, you know, some people, their only connotation, if you're new to church or you've, you've never read the Bible, your connotation of the ark might be Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was a long time. Remember that movie back in the uh, 80s or Harrison Ford? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, it really was a ark. And God really did build it to a certain specification. The cherubim, the wings touched, and, and the presence of God's holiness would reside there. And uh, the high priest could only go into the Holy Holies once per year. And if you went in there with sin, you weren't coming back out, right? So everything had to be exactly according to the Lord's uh, design. But he says here, and there I will meet with you. But it's called the testimony here. The testimony that I will give you. The testimony was what? It was the two tablets. When Moses went up on top of the mountain, God gave him two tablets and how many commands? Ten of them. The first one and the tenth, are at, the tenth one restates the first. It's basically idolatry at the first, idolatry at the end. But he gives him ten commandments on two tablets. But he calls them one word, testimony. Testimony. It's God's testimony to human mankind. Those Ten Commandments went into the ark. And so the, the thing that we want to look at, the next point here, is that in the tabernacle, it reflects the truth. Way back in the garden, God said one thing and a servant said something else, right? They both said something, right? Who was telling the truth? The servant said, you won't surely die. Because the second they sinned, did they die in that instant? No. They thought, well, the, we, they just ate of this, and we're not dead yet. People still have this same deception. I'm probably not going to die soon because I'm not dead yet. No one knows when the day may come. God tells the truth. The enemy lies. So he, God says, in the ark will always be perfect truth. The church will reflect the truth. And at Calvary Chapel, Richmond... And I know the Calvary Chapel is worldwide, and hopefully the whole body of Christ, we would believe that what God has said 
is the most important thing on earth. What God has said is the most important thing. We have government, we have school systems, we have college professors that are trying to tell Americans and young people that God does not know what he's talking about. His testimony was written by his finger in what? Sand? No, stone. You ever heard the term written in stone? This is where it comes from. There's only one in all the universe who's actually able to take a finger and write in stone. Everyone else, we write with pens and iPad things and whatever else it is. But God can literally write in stone. And when it's written in stone, he's saying it doesn't alter. And so the church has to reflect the truth. Not what's popular. We cannot reflect what's popular. We reflect what's true. Well, I wanted to warn them not to put their hand on the stove, but I thought it would ruin their day because they really thought it looked colorful. Right? The flames were so pretty. No, we would say, well, no, no, no. It, it doesn't matter what people perceive. A two-year-old can't perceive that bright blue flames, yes, they may be pretty, are harmful. So we give what is true, not what is popular. Satan is the father of lies. God is the father of life. Big difference. Number four, look at verse 30. Number four. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. And so many of the, that, matter of fact, if we ever did a study of this Ten Commandments, they actually overlap each other. We don't have time to get into that this morning. But this one, these aren't the Ten Commandments. The, the commandments were the testimony in the ark. The next thing is he said, you set out the showbread. The priest could actually eat of the showbread. Not, no one else could, but they could. They could eat of the showbread. And they put the showbread there, and, and it wouldn't go bad. Uh, during that week, and so they put the showbread out, and this fourth point, if you're taking notes, the temple or the tabernacle reflects the teaching and edifying of Christ. And what do I mean by that? How does showbread or, or a loaf of bread, how does a loaf of bread reflect the teaching or edifying of Christ? Well, it, edify, it, it reflects it in this way. The Ten Commandments are truth, right? Who came and walked on earth and explained the commandments? Jesus did. He even said not a single jot or tittle will pass away. He explained the commandments. He actually lived them per to perfection. But Jesus didn't come and just say truth. He taught about truth. I could get up here and just say one true thing and sit back down. That's not teaching. True? That's stating a fact. But you can state a fact, which is important. The testimony had to be there. The fact had to be written in stone. But the showbread reflects you feed something. You teach something. Jesus didn't just present truth. He taught it. And we need truth and instruction along with the rock-solid truth. We need it to be taught and instructed. That's why God has given people gifts to be teachers or elders or leaders in some respect. And, and, but all of us as the body of Christ, as parents, we've been given enough gifting through salvation to teach our kids not just tell them truth, but model truth and teach truth and feed. That makes sense? So when you're here this morning, that you would not just hear truth, but you would be encouraged. You'd be strengthened. You would be well fed. What did Jesus say to Peter? He did not say, Peter, tell them truth. He said, feed my sheep. Now, Peter had already known that the only thing he could feed was actually good food. He couldn't feed them poison because that would be untruth. Satan feeds poison. Matter of fact, he said, Take and eat, right? 
Satan wants people to eat too. He wants them to eat from Cosmopolitan or from, you know, garbage on TV or from career-mindedness or whatever it may be. But the Lord says, no, no, feed on this. So we have to have the reflection of the teaching edifying of Christ. The fifth point, if you're taking notes, verse 37. Look at verse 37. We're still in chapter 25. Verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it. They shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. This is the menorah. We actually have one over there on the sound booths. You can see a menorah right over there. You can see the seven candles. This is the menorah that went, went, that went in there. Menorah means lamp. That's what the word means. So the lamp was supposed to give light. And so the next point here, attributes of the tabernacle, the tabernacle reflects the light of Christ, reflects the light of Christ. What did Jesus say to the, the apostles? You are the light of the world. Now, they couldn't make themselves light. They had to become light through salvation, through the work of Christ. We become light. We can't shine on our own. It's only when Jesus comes in and we, he shines out. Does that make sense? In other words, we have no electrical wiring spiritually to shine light. God supernaturally puts light in. And so we're called to be the light of the world. And the church is to be a light. You know, here at Calvary Chapel of Richmond, you know, we should be a light. We, people should know that this place believes in prayer because that's a light. Many people don't believe in prayer anymore. They've stopped praying. There's, you know, a matter of fact, all the great awakenings in, in the history of the church have begun with prayer meetings. Did you realize that every time the church has faded away, prayer has also faded away prior to the church fading away? To be a light, there has to be prayer. There has to be a witness. You have to desire to tell your unsaved neighbor, hey, can I share with you the Lord? Can I invite you to church? There has to be a desire to be a witness, to share the truth. There has to be a desire to worship. If people come here and we don't worship, this is not a house of worship then, right? It's a house of something, but not worship. It has to be a light in the worship. It has to be a light of love. There has to be love that people receive and know is present in us, and it's not uh, touchy-feely hypocrisy. It is genuine. With all of our imperfections, you know what I mean by this, those of you that are married, you know what it's like to have genuine love that's not hypocritical in spite of your imperfections. True? And you still love each other after all these years. You actually know your imperfections and still love each other, right? That kind of love that transcends where people are at, that's actually light. It comes from Christ. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I haven't said it in a while, so it's worth saying. Um, if you have a miserable attitude and claim to be a born-again Christian, please don't claim Calvary Chapel as your church. <laughs> I mean, not publicly. You can, keep, you can keep coming because we want you to get past that stage. You can keep coming. We'll still love you anyway, but don't tell other people that this is your home church. If you really have a miserable attitude, you cut people off in traffic, you actually give people a piece of your mind at work and all that good stuff, don't tell them this is your home church. Tell, I'll give you some church. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you're living like the world, don't tell them this is your church. Tell them you don't have a home church yet, you know, that kind of thing. These are things that, again, we want to reflect the light of Christ. We're placed here in this community and in this world to be salt. Salt gives flavor. I like salt on food. I, don't, I know it causes high blood. I still like salt on food. It's good. It makes food taste better. Uh, 
a piece of sweet corn is much better with salt and pepper and butter on it than just by itself. We're to provide flavor. We're to provide light. We're to reflect the light of Christ. Let's look at number six. Number six is found. Where did I put number six? Okay, number six is found in verse one of chapter 26. Move to the next chapter. Verse one of chapter 26. Moreover, you shall take uh, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. All right, so ten curtains, these different colors of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. They've got angels woven on them, and you have artistic talent given to do this work. The next point, if you're taking notes again, number six is uh, the tabernacle reflects Christ and all of his revelation, all of his revelation to mankind. Now, Christ is revealed to mankind in a lot of different ways. When he came to the earth, he was revealed as a little tiny what? Baby. Is that the only revelation of Jesus? Not by a mile. Not by millions of miles, right? That was one of the representations that he came that humbly. That was a picture of his humility. Is Jesus laying in a manger right now? No. Despite people using his name in vain, that's not a good idea. Because now he's sitting on a throne, he's made earth his footstool. Even though the world is on fire, he still has control of the whole thing, doesn't he? So, we understand that, that we are to reflect all of his revelation in the church. And that's through the teaching, that's through discipleship, that's through worship, that's through all the means that God has given us to reflect him. And uh, J. Vernon McGee, he wrote this, uh, he said, everything in the tabernacle speaks of either the person or the work of Christ. Every covering, every thread, every article of furniture reveals some facet of the Savior. Now, each of these different colors, uh, if you look at the, the linen, for example, the linen, uh, when Jesus was born, he was wrapped in what? Swaddling clothes. So he starts out in that humble state, wrapped in, you know, perhaps uh, this uh, white kind of linen, which was used uh, for the swaddling clothes. But that same linen or swaddling was also used in the mummification at death. So we actually see a picture of the humility of his birth and the low place of his birth, but also the humbling way he would die. We see him as a servant as he walked, wearing linen, walking the dusty streets, serving. We see the serving aspect of Jesus. But we also see these other colors, the blue. The blue is a picture of what? It's the priesthood. The priestly garments were blue. So Jesus would be what? Our high priest. And we're to recognize, and that speaks of a prayer life again, back uh, at the feet of the, uh, of the feet of Jesus as our high priest. The purple, the purple is royalty. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. There's his royal status. And then we see the scarlet thread. That's the shed blood. We see the sacrifice. He's called the lamb of God. So we see the sacrifice all of these aspects, we are to reflect them. We're to teach them. We're to understand them. When we're talking to people, say, you know, did you know this about Jesus? And when they come to Calvary Chapel, they should over time see these different representations of Christ in our life and in our ministry, not royalty. That comes in heaven, right? There should be no royalty in us. That's, that's reserved for him. That if we're going to give any glory, who does it go to? Jesus. 
But if we're going to learn anything from him, we would be humble and servant-like him. And that should be reflected. So we should reflect Christ in his revel- and all of his revelation to mankind. Let's look at number seven. Number seven, drop down to verse six. Um, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. You see that all these clasps, you ever put something together and it starts out a million pieces, but when you're done, it's one thing, right? You buy one car, right? You don't buy it in pieces. Some of you could do that. I would be in a lot of trouble, right? But you buy one thing that's a many things put together. So he says, take all these 50 clasps of gold, couple the curtains together with the clasps, that it be one tabernacle. Number seven, if you're taking notes, the tabernacle reflects the unity of the Godhead, the unity of the Godhead. Jesus, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are completely united. They're never in disagreement. They're always in perfect harmony. That makes sense? We are not always in perfect agreement. Even in the last six weeks, there's been many times where we've had a discussion about this building. And said, I don't know if I agree with that, you know? I don't know about that. I don't know if that'll work. Well, you think it'll work, and I don't think it'll work, right? That, all that kind of stuff. But those kind of things, if we're united in the Spirit, God has us pushed past those things, and we're united in the overall mindset of Jesus Christ. That makes sense? That we're not, you know, we can actually disagree on little things, but they don't cause a disagreement. They don't cause a division. That we're united in the gospel on the work of Christ. Also, J. Vernon McGee said, as the bars held the tabernacle together, so the Holy Spirit of God holds true believers together today. Believers should be held together by the Spirit. In fact, believers are told to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, church is split because of disunity and division. It's never been God's will. His will is that we'd be united in love, and we'd actually defer considering others better than ourselves. That's a good way to actually be united is when you stop believing that you're always right and that I'm always right. And we just start to say, you know, God is always right. And humble ourselves there and he will unite us that we should have unity, that a marriage should be unity, should be an agreement. Well, the only way you'll be in agreement is we actually start, you've got to go back and that's why all these things are related. You actually have to have the truth and you have to have the proper feeding and those things bring unity when we all accept that God's moving us in the same direction. Amen? You ever know, you know, children of Israel, when they were splintering there in the wilderness, notice who was in unity. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb. Who was in disunity? Those who didn't believe the word of God. Believing in the word of God brings unity, but we have to submit to being unified, to being humble to loving each other in spite of our faults and flaws, and there's going to be some. Taking notes, let's look at the eighth one, number eight. Look at verse uh, 29 of chapter 26. Verse 29, you shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders of the bars and overlay the bars with gold. Now, these were wooden bars, so it starts out with wood planks, and then uh, if you, you know, the ancient people were amazing with metalworks and things like that, but God gave them incredible skill. Some of the things today, we still are a little bit, wow, did they do these things? But nevertheless, out there in the wilderness, uh, some even scholars think that some of these things were supernatural, that God gave supernatural things 
But ever, anyway, taking these wood planks and overlaying them with pure gold, this, uh, this eighth point, the tabernacle reflects transformed lives. The tabernacle reflects transformed lives. The wood is taken out of a tree, and you and I, with salvation, were taken out of the world. We're cut out of the world, thankfully. Amen, right? There was a time where I was nailed into the world. God takes the screws out, pulls the wood out, takes us out of the world, and overlays us with not gold, but his blood. And that's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Overlays us with his grace. We're covered by grace which is worth more than gold, but this is just a foreshadow type, just a picture. We're covered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is worth more than gold. We're covered by his blood. And that wood, when it's covered with gold, you notice say it's, it's completely covered. It's fully sealed. There's no air pockets whatsoever. All the wood is completely sealed on all, all, tight, all sides. And I love that in Ephesians 4.30, it says, the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed until the day of of redemption. Aren't you glad that as a wood plank that would have rotted over time? Earlier this week, we found out that in the basement, the sump pump had been unplugged. And when it had it unplugged, we got a lot of rain. And there was a new baptismal downstairs about three and a half inches deep. I don't know how many hundreds of gallons of water. But the problem got fixed for real now because you knew what was going on. Well, then we, the sheetrock was pulled back, and there was rotted wood underneath. So we've actually got all this stuff resolved. It's right size in the sump pump. Everything's in place. But that wood, all wood, if it's not sealed and overlaid, will eventually do what? It will rot. And we as wood pulled out of the world will eventually rot and die. But God seals it. The tabernacle reflects transformed lives. And Calvary Chapel Richmond I pray that more and more in the years to come, we reflect many transformed lives. Like that video is showing, thousands coming to Christ here and at churches around the world. Let's look at the next one. Number nine, two left. Number nine, verse 33. And you shall, same chapter, verse 26. And you shall, bring, you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Uh, then you shall bring the ark of the testimony there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy is a thing that many people have forgotten about God, but God hasn't forgotten he's holy. He'll always be holy. If the world doesn't think holiness is cool anymore, it does not matter to God. He's holy nonetheless. I think it's awesome that we have a holy God, don't you? But his holiness gives me a healthy fear of him. Not a fear like, like petrified fear, but I've said the, many times, a great sports coach has a healthy fear from the team. And realizes that if you say, hey, I know you called that play, but I've taken over now, you won't be on the team anymore, right? It's a healthy fear of the Lord that's needed for us to grow in our spiritual walk. It's a healthy fear of the Lord needed. Number nine, the tabernacle reflects the holiness of God. Church, Christian, we're not to pursue happiness. We're to pursue holiness. When we pursue holiness, guess what we often get? Happiness. People all over America, they right now are pursuing happiness. They're tailgating at the Giant Stadium. They're tailgating at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They have taken the entire weekend to plan for happiness. 
and they still never find it. We're to pursue holiness. There can't be hidden sin when you have a holy God. We have to understand that God is holy and he, he looks upon sin and he's willing to forgive it, but he won't allow it in the church, in our lives, without consequences because he's holy. That's why he sent his son to die for our sins. If he didn't die for our sins, then we have the eternal consequences, which are far worse than temporal consequences. Look at chapter 28 for just a second. Look over to chapter 28. I, I, don't, in, I don't know how much you've studied the Old Testament, but look at verses 36 and 37 with me real quick, and then we'll look at the final point. Look at 36 and 37. Now, the high priest, when the priestly garments were given, the priest was given a turban that the high priest was supposed to wear, and on the, the, there was a plate at the forehead area where it would say the following. It says, and it shall be upon when Aaron, when he ministers, the sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, that he comes out that he may not die. Why? He had to go in there with a clean heart, no unconfessed sin. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and grave on it like the engraving of a signet. It should be in most of your Bibles, capital letters, holiness to the Lord. You shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and be the front of the turban, verse 38, so shall it be on Aaron's forehead. God wants it right here between the eyes to remember holiness to the Lord. Why does this still apply to us? Well, in the New Testament, it says in Revelation 1.6, and God has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve God and father, serve his God and Father, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the New Testament, we find out we are all called to be priests. Guess what's supposed to be on our forehead for the world to see? Holiness to the Lord. Now, they won't see it written, uh, don't go put a gold plate on your head, but they're not supposed to see it that way, but they're supposed to see it in our eyes, that we have the fear of the Lord, that we believe in the holiness of God, and we believe that we live a life separated from the way the world thinks because we have a holy God in which we serve and we're to, have, we're to reflect his holiness. Last one, verse 10, and that's found in chapter 27, chapter 27, verse 20. Chapter 27, verse 20. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn. How long? Continually. We're given the Holy Spirit to live forever, but that the life of the Spirit is to be a continuation of flowing constantly out of our lives. The tenth point here, the tabernacle reflects life of the Spirit or life in the Spirit. Life of the Spirit. The tabernacle reflects light in the Spirit. The oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And this applies to us personally and individually. Listen to this quote from Samuel Chadwood. Matter of fact, uh, when Pastor Randy prayed, I think he said something like, set us on fire. And this is the last quote I have, and it's from Samuel Chadwick, and he wrote this. He said, spirit-filled souls are ablaze for God. They love with a love that glows. They serve with a faith that kindles. They serve with a devotion that consumes. They hate sin with a fierceness that burns. They rejoice with a joy that radiates. Love is perfected in the fire of God. It's the Holy Spirit. What happened at Pentecost? What appeared over their heads? Little clothes of fire. It was a picture of the burning, the, you know, fire burns with oil. When a lamp 
burns, the lamp that was in the, in the tabernacle was olive oil. It had to be pressed olive oil, and you had the wick, and it would burn because of the oil. You and I cannot burn for the Lord. We cannot live for the Lord without the oil of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The New Testament church, this church, should reflect life in the Spirit. And those ten things, there's more, but in a ver- real s- little snapshot, the Lord had me go back and review. I had to review them first because... I need a lot of wisdom pastoring a church. I need a lot of wisdom, but the Lord says, you don't need any more than what I've given you right here. And you do need to learn from other people. I have mentors, and you should have people in your life that disciple you. But the number one thing we need is we need to say, Lord, you've given us the design. We need to follow it. Amen? The attributes of this tabernacle are the same for the New Testament church today and the same for us. And as we come to a close here, uh, last week I had mentioned at the end of, uh, end of, I did a topical message last week on moving out and then and coming in here. I talked about these three things, and God really still wants us to not forget them. Uh, he's the God of fresh starts, clean hearts, and his part. Fresh starts, clean hearts, and his part. Now, the fresh starts only happen when our hearts are in the right place, right? But if our hearts are in the right place, and we get those fresh starts. And aren't you glad for fresh starts? I am. I've had a lot of them in my life. All right, Lord, I'm going to start all over again. And this time, right, fresh starts. But you have to have a clean heart. But then God does his part. If our hearts are in the right place, there's nothing the Lord won't do. And he'll do more than we can ask, think, or imagine in this church, in this community, in this neighborhood, in your families, and in the world. Amen? But those fresh starts come from God when our hearts are in the right place. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning that your word, still faithful thousands of years later, it never, Lord, even for a moment, waxes old, but instead, Lord, it's new. You make all things new. And, Lord, we pray that uh, you would allow us, Lord, to be cleansed, to be filled, and to rightly reflect you among each other, in this neighborhood, in this community, and in the world. Lord, that lives will be transformed. We will see many pieces of wood taken out and covered with the blood of Jesus, overlaid with the gold of your sacrifice. It's in your name we pray. Amen.